I want to, as a father, say thank you and echo what Paul said about Kids Week. My daughter looked forward to Kids Week all year, and it didn't matter what we did that was awesome. It wasn't as awesome as Kids Week was going to be. And uh, after the week happened, that is still her tune. So thank you so much for everyone who helped care for our students, our kids, uh, served, gave of your time, talents, and energy. Uh, my son is still a year away, so he's going to hear it all year that she, he, she got to go to Kids Week and he didn't. And uh, he's super excited for next year already, so thank you so much. Uh, I want to start this morning as we venture one week further into this series, uh, the I'm Shook series. I want to start with a poll. And I just want to be upfront with this. This poll is going to take some vulnerability, and it's going to take some honesty. And I know we're kind of starting in strong, but that's how I want to start this morning. And I think you'll see it'll be helpful to us. So I'm actually going to ask you to raise your hand. So don't be nervous. It's okay. You can look around if you need to. I need to see your hands in the air. If you believe aliens exist, up high and hold them up high with boldness and courage. Extraterrestrials exist. You can put them back up. I would like to see that a little bit longer. Okay, okay. Awesome. Thank you so much. You can put your hands down. That actually shows a unique stark contrast between uh, a poll that I recently read and this poll. Um, Actually, if you raised your hand, you're in pretty good company around the United States. 47% of people in the U.S. believe aliens exist which is pretty profound. I didn't know that before. I read that study. Now I know a lot of people that I walk past on a daily basis, they've come to that conclusion. And I can't judge that. I'm not sure yet for myself. So asking that question for me is kind of unfair. I'm not sure. I may be like, "Uh." but I have actually found there's something that intrigues me more than that question related to aliens. So whether or not they exist, I don't know. But here's a a concern I have, and I want to see if anyone else is with me. You guys, if aliens exist... And they show up, and let's assume they're at least a little bit smarter than us, right? Because they got here. And they've done some research, and maybe it's some extensive research, maybe not. Maybe it's like a little bit shallow research, like you just kind of pick a spot on the map, and you're like, let's just go there and see what happens. And they're they're trying to interact with our civilization, our, our, our people group. And they show up, and they show up on Black Friday at Best Buy. And that is their first introduction to humanity. Think about that for a second. You see, like, women who spend their entire day caring for young children, and they're in line on Black Friday punching people in the face for a flat-screen TV. Think about this. I know I'm going to hurt some feelings right now, but have you ever seen a Comic-Con, comic convention, where people are dressed up as their favorite characters from movies and TV shows and video games, and more power to you if you can do that. That's a lot of spandex for me, but I think about... I think about aliens dropping right in the middle of Comic-Con and looking around and trying to figure out where their miscalculation was. They see all of these people, and they, in a given day, they're going to see 75 to 100 different shaped Spider-Man walking around, right? <laughs> and they don't know what that is in the first place, let alone which one is accurate, right? I grew up in northwest Pennsylvania, and no joke, on the interstate, you can drive for a straight mile once a week, or one, one week out of the year, for a straight mile down the highway if you look to your right, you will see tents and flags and fake castles for a week. Thousands of people from all over the actual world, not just our area, the world, descend on northwest Pennsylvania in the middle of a cow pasture, and they put on a medieval times fair. Think about an alien landing in a medieval times fair in the 21st century, and he's going to watch as a person gets out of their 21st century car, beep, beep, whatever it makes, and they're going to go directly from that car with a computer in its dashboard into tights with feathers, pick up a bow and arrow that is non-lethal, 
walk out to a fake castle and reenact a battle they may not actually know accurately. And you're trying to figure out, I actually have come to a conclusion, whether or not they exist or not, if they ever come here, and their motives are not good for us, our best defense is ourselves. If they come looking to conquer us, they walk into a field like that, they look around, it's going to be like me at an exit in West Virginia one time. No offense, West Virginia. I got out, I looked around, I said, kids back in the car, let's go, we're going. Because there is no way they're sticking around for what we've got to offer. It's getting really weird in places, right? Now, the reason I tell you that, one, is because I've been thinking about that a lot recently with the announcement of the space agency and what we have going to Space Force, thank you. It has nothing to do with why that's invented, but I just started thinking and I got off on a rabbit trail and started thinking about aliens. I wanted to share that with you just because I'm, I didn't want to be alone in that thought. Sometimes I think about what if they show up and it's me they find, and I'm at like my family reunion or something, and I just want to be like, no, no, like, yes, they're with me, I'm with them, but like not everyone's like this. But Here's why I actually share that with you. There's two things I think we can pull from that idea there's a lot more than that, but there's two helpful things we can pull from that idea for this series, this I'm Shook series. The first is this. A lot of times we find ourselves in circumstances that we did not expect to find ourselves in, right? Like if you were projecting out your life, it wouldn't have looked like this, and yet here you are in this moment. And that for many of us can lead not to funny or exciting times, but sometimes to really frustrating, painful, concerning experiences. The second thing is this. There are moments in our life, whether they're good or bad, or whether we found ourselves there on purpose or not, where if we don't, if we're not careful, we can be thoroughly convinced that this moment right here in front of us is all-encompassing and defining for our life forever. So in this series, what we're looking at is we're looking at those moments where you find yourselves in a place where you didn't expect, and it's so rattling that you would just say, man, I'm shook, like this has got me shook, and the second piece of that is maybe that moment is a moment that it's hard to get out from. You're microscopically zoomed in on that moment, and it's really tough to get out. And so maybe you've never used that phrase, that phrase that we're going with this week, but you've been there. I I would guess if we passed a microphone around, we could share endless amounts of stories about people in this room who have gotten into that circumstance. And so today we're actually going to look at a song, and the song is found in a book full of songs. It's called Psalms. And there's a writer named Asaph that many of us have probably never heard of. I didn't know much about him before I started researching this. But Asaph is that guy who is actually gifted in writing songs and music, and he's an instrumentalist. And he's actually drafted by King David to do just this. He's writing songs, and the songs aren't just songs just because. They're actually songs that are supposed to lead the people of God to worship God more fully. Well, in the process of all of this, he writes the psalm we now know as Psalm 73. And Psalm 73 is like such a vulnerable, almost gut-wrenching psalm to get into. It almost feels weird to read it, like you're getting too vulnerable of a look at Asaph's life, but I'm so glad he wrote it. I'm so glad it's here for us this morning because we're going to jump into this, and I think it has a lot to offer us, especially when we're in this moment. So Asaph starts this psalm with a really, really powerful statement of faith. And so he starts it like this, surely God is good to Israel, the people of God, to those who are pure in heart. So surely, for sure, God is good to his people and specifically those people who are following him. Now this is said with an exclamation point, but as you go through the song, you start to realize there are a lot of moments where Asaph actually would have written a question mark at the end. And so, but this is where he starts. And then he gets really honest and says, but even though I feel that way, even though I 
believed that strongly, there was a moment where I actually struggled with that idea. And he says it this way. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So, man, God has to be good. He's good to those people who follow him. He's good to his people. But for me personally, I almost lost that idea. I almost threw that that idea in the garbage. And this is why. Because I looked around and I saw that there were people who were doing such evil things. And instead of what I expected to happen, that they would get consequences or they would be punished or they would just be eliminated, instead of that, what I actually realized is they got more and more prosperous. And I actually started to envy them because they got to do whatever they wanted to do and they got away with it and it seemed like they were blessed for it. And that didn't make any sense. And that's what put me in a situation where I almost lost my foothold. I was on slippery ground. Asaph's going to repeat that idea in this psalm, that slippery ground concept. Now, for some of us, when we read this, we're like, yes, I've been struggling with that very idea. We maybe would put it differently. Like we would say, listen, I don't know why there are people in my life that can eat anything they want to as much as they want to and they stay skinny. That seems unjust. Maybe it's a little more serious. Maybe I don't understand why there's people at work that cut corners and cheat and make dishonest money and it doesn't seem to harm them. I don't understand why there are people that can just throw their weight around and bully people and, and, and tear people down and for some reason people just put them on a pedestal and give them more and more influence. Why is it that that happens? Maybe that's not your slippery ground, but for Asaph, he's kind of stuck on it. He actually tells us about it. He says, listen, they, meaning the wicked people, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. And because of that, therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. They just don't even care. And they hurt people around them. From their callous hearts come iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They're inventing new ways to be, be evil. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. And they talk about things that are way bigger than them, but they talk like they own those things. And then this is the, this is the therefore. What happens when they do that is that the people following them, they see what they're doing and what they're getting away with, and not only do they think, they think, man, I should probably start doing that too. It's really working out for them. But the trickle down of seemingly blessing for their evil actually makes it all the way to the people following them. It's like it's a good thing to do the wrong thing and follow the people who are doing the wrong thing. And it gets to the point where those people start to actually ask questions about God's existence and his character. They start to say, listen, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. And it leads Asaph to the point in this, this, what seems like a pity party that I honestly, for much of my life, could probably get into. In the midst of this like frustration, anxious, envy, God, where are you moment, he admits this. He says, listen, this is where I got to. I started to think, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Surely this has all been a complete waste. I mean, when I look around, evidently, all of the time, energy, and effort I've put into trying to be an upright person, and God-honoring person, following God, it's been a complete waste. Why? Well, because all day long, I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. This is really important. These are two ideas that are different, but they're put together by Asaph. Afflictions are what everybody just gets. 
Nobody wants it, but, but droughts happen, floods happen, fires take place, people get sick, things are just afflicting us, and everybody gets afflictions. But Asaph's saying, listen, all I've gotten for all the stuff I've tried to do right is afflictions like everybody else. And even worse than that, on top of the afflictions everybody else gets, every morning it seems I wake up to new punishments, and this has the idea of coming from God. So not only is God not shielding me from the stuff that everybody else gets, he's actually heaping more on. I can't catch a break. And Asaph is in a really, really low point. And then in this moment, Asaph breaks character for a second and says to the listener, listen, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. If I had actually been honest and vulnerable about the stuff that was going on inside, my doubts, my fears, my frustrations, my bitterness towards God, in this, in this position of leadership I have as a worship leader, if I had said all of that, man, that would, that would have messed some people up. Some of us in this room, we felt like that. We know there are people following us. There are people in our spheres of influence. And we find ourselves on slippery ground, however we got there, whatever that represents in your life. And if we're honest, stuff's going on in here that we're not really being clear with because we're concerned about how that stuff would affect the people following us. And Asaph's saying, yeah, I'm there. If I had put all this stuff out in the open, it would have messed some people up. And then he says this, when I tried to understand all of this, all the stuff that's happening, the stuff that he's, he's seeing, it troubled me deeply. So Asaph's in the middle of this just weight and this pressure and this frustration, wondering if everything he's ever done was a waste, wondering what all of his life is going to add up to, looking around and seeing people having tremendous life, having fun, no matter what they do, they get promotions and affirmation and followers and friends, and people just seem to just heap praise on them for all the bad stuff they're doing, and he's like, you know what, why am I even doing all this? And inherent in that is, man, I wonder if, like those other people, if God knows what he's doing. I wonder if he's still on his job. I wonder if he's concerned about all this like I am. I wonder if he's paying attention. And then as a masterful songwriter, Asaph lets us just sit there for a moment. And we sit with him in this pity party that he's in, which is legitimate, like this happens in the real world. And then he drops this phrase on us, and this will be the pivot point for the rest of the psalm. This will be the turning point in Asaph's experience that would totally change our experience. And when, it, when, he, when he writes it and we read it, it almost seems too simple. It's like, really? That, that's, what, that's what happens? And everything following that, I just want to give you a heads up, everything following this next phrase is going to be a layered response that God leads Asaph into. And I want you to pay special attention to each layer, and I want you to ask yourself as we talk about them, is that, is that something for me? Is that something that God may be talking to me about? And so Asaph delivers this turning point phrase. He says, this was what my life was like till I entered the sanctuary of God. All of that was what my life was like, and then I stepped into the presence of God. Now for Asaph, the sanctuary of God was a physical location where God had actually said to his people, I'm going to meet you there. Because I'm going to meet you there, it needs to be very, very sacred. It needs to be a space for my presence. Keep it clean. Keep it holy. Only certain people can come and meet me there. So Asaph entered this sacred space. For us, we don't think about it as a space so much. For some of you, maybe this is your sacred space on Sunday mornings. With this group of the people of God come to worship. For some of us, it's actually on a mountaintop, like a physical mountaintop, where you can just look and see further than you can ever see. 
For me, sometimes it's a body of water, especially the ocean. When I step up next to the ocean, I feel like, man, if I take one step in, I'm face to face with God. I'm so small. He is so big. Asaph says, listen, I found myself in the space of God, in this presence of God, and everything changed. Now, we don't know why Asaph went into the sanctuary of God. It could be that he was just hungry to worship God. It could be that he just knew it was the right thing to do. It could be God was just drawing him there or someone invited him. My hunch, I don't know this, my hunch is he was just going to work. Like, he, he was a worship leader. It was time to go to work, and he, he went to work. I think he probably went out of obligation. But he arrived, and no matter what attitude he arrived in, when he stepped into the sanctuary of God, everything changed, and it changed in layers. The first response he says is this. Listen, when I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. He's talking about the wicked people. He says, then I understood what was actually going to happen to them. Surely you place them on slippery ground, not me. It's them that's on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. So the first layer for Asaph sounds a little bit harsh, right? It kind of sounds like he's cheering and clapping about the destruction of people, which I think he might have been. It's kind of messed up. But what this really represented for Asaph is, is a huge perspective shift. Because Asaph found himself in a place he didn't want to be, and he was so zoomed in on the wickedness that was being rewarded that that's all he could see. This is my world now. When you do the wrong thing, you get rewarded. When I do the right thing, I get punished. And that's what he saw. And the first layer of God's teaching Asaph and changing his heart was actually, Asaph, what you were taught about good and evil is true. You're just way too zoomed in. What you were taught about right and wrong and the justice of God, it will still be carried out, Asaph, but it won't be carried out in your timing or expectations. What you know about the way you're supposed to live, it's still the right way to live, Asaph. You're just seeing a temporary picture because eventually those people that you see as being rewarded will realize they're on a very slippery slope. And eventually... Their actions will lead to the judgment that has to come when you live a life like that. It will still happen. And Asaph, you could be rescued from that, but you're super focused on how it's not working out for you. For Asaph, though, this was a huge turning point. He was reminded of the truth that, okay, okay, maybe God has a plan for this whole situation. Maybe God's not out of control. Maybe he's still on his job, but he keeps going. The next layer for Asaph actually comes with some self-reflection. He says, When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you. So first Asaph says, Wait a second. Those fat and and happy cats, they're not actually going to be okay after all. There is something coming for them. They're on slippery ground. And then it, it gets turned in where he's like, Wait a second. Actually... When I was so focused on them, when I was so zoomed in on them, when I was so grieved, I actually started to become bitter at God and bitter in life. My perspective started to just be like tainted. I was defined by my my bitterness. I was senseless and ignorant. I just didn't know. I was like a brute beast. When I think about that, I don't know exactly what he means, but I picture a cow in a pasture just eating up all the grass it can and feeling like the world is just going to happen to it. Not in control. I'm here to do my job. I'm just waiting for the next thing to happen. 
Asaph's time in the presence of God has shown them that it's not just those people who are on a slippery slope. The condition of his inner soul, his heart, his attitude is pretty rotten itself. So those people need justice, but he needs something too. As Asaph's in the presence of God a little bit longer, something else starts to take place. He starts to realize that as those people have some consequences coming and as he's not super excited about what his heart looks like, God is still good, like he said in the beginning. He says this about it. He says, yet I am always with you, God. I am always with you. I am always with you, God. You hold me by my right hand. Now, for for Asaph, he's saying right hand. For you lefties out there, he's really saying strong hand. You hold me by my strong hand. And it strikes me as I'm thinking about life. What do I do with my strong hand? Man, I, I provide for myself. I feed myself. If something were to happen, something were to come at me, I would defend myself. If I were on slippery ground and I went to fall, I would catch myself with my strong hand. What Asaph's saying is actually, what's better than having a really strong hand is having an even stronger hand that I can put my strong hand into. What I see when I think about what he just said as a songwriter is I picture one of my children putting their hand up into mine or my wife's hand and trusting us as we walk together. It's what we do when we cross a parking lot or a road. It's what we do when one of them gets scared of the dark. It's this understanding that no matter where I'm at, no matter who's, who's getting what around me, no matter what the world seems like it's going, no matter what the inner condition of my heart is, I am with God and he offers to me what I cannot offer for myself. Something way bigger than my opportunity or my ability to provide, defend, or catch myself on slippery ground. Asaph's next layer is realizing that no matter the condition of his heart or the condition of the world, God loves him and is with him and is providing for him. And that's huge because that's not where he felt like he was at first. Asaph spends more and more time in the presence of God and it gets even richer for him. He gets beyond this and he starts to say, actually, you know what? You guide me with your counsel, God. Where I was senseless and ignorant, where my viewpoint was skewed, where I just was on my own to determine what was going on in the world, you give me counsel. You give me wisdom I didn't have. And afterwards, after this life, you'll take me into glory. I don't know if he knew that and forgot it, but he was definitely shown that God had a plan for Asaph's life, not just for now, but for later. And then he says, whom have I in heaven but you? You're it. You're in charge. you're, You're what I've got that I'm running towards. And if you're what I've got in heaven, on earth, on earth has nothing I desire but you. Asaph just went from, I can't make sense of the world, look at all these people getting everything they want while I don't get anything I want to, you know what? God, you're so good, I'm chasing after you, you're what I'm looking forward to so much that I don't care what everybody else is getting on the face of the earth, I'm not distracted by any of it. In fact, in my life, you're all I really want. You're what I'm after. And then he puts this phrase out in front of us that is massive. He says this. This is what I think God was after Asaph the whole time for. Asaph came to him with this. He said, this is my problem, God. And and God listens to him and starts to talk to him about the problem. And I think God goes layer by layer until he gets to this point because I think this was the root problem. Everything else was symptomatic. This was the root problem. And God deals with it. And Asaph says, listen to this. My flesh... And my heart may fail. Those words mean my body and then my innermost heart, mind, soul, that like the, the innermost core of who I am. My physical body and the core of who I am may fail. But God is the strength of my heart 
and my portion forever. What Asaph just said is, listen, I know there is something way bigger than me that I can't control. Ultimately, one day my heart's going to stop ticking. My body's going to quit on me. And only God knows why it's ticking in the first place. Like, quite literally, only God is the one who gives me the breath I draw in. I don't know how to make my life any longer. I can't actually sustain myself. But God, you're the strength of my heart, and you always were. And then he uses this word portion. See, a portion is not what you take off a buffet. It's what's given to you in a lunch line. A portion for Asaph wasn't what he could carve out of his life. It was what he was given. Asaph was a worship leader. He was from the tribe of of Levi. The tribe of Levi were people who were called to be priests. While everybody else had the land around them carved up into allotments, and they could spend their life trying to make their living and be entrepreneurs and hand their land down to their families, the tribe of Levi, Asaph included, was given an allot set amount of money and income every year. It came in the form mostly of food and provision. As everybody else was out doing their thing, they could rely on the fact that this would be here, but it would be it. That's all they'd got. And it comes through the hands of people who faithfully give. So there's this layer to Asaph as he's going into the sanctuary to perform his religious duty, as he's going to actually fulfill the calling he has on his life. He's looking around, he's seeing all these people with all the decisions they're making and all the things they're getting for themselves and raking it in, and that's his zoomed-in perspective. And, and what he gets is just what he gets. And then he says, but God, you're my portion forever. God, you're actually what sustains me. God, it's not the the meat that's handed to me by the priest. It's not the food or the money that comes through the hands of the people out of their giving. It's not what I can get and build for myself. It's not the 401k or the boat or the life that I could have. It's not everything working out in my family. It's not all the things I wish I could control. It's not the fact that I'm strong enough and I'm big enough. Actually, God, my portion that I'm given that I'm looking at right now is actually just you. And I'm okay with that. You are my portion forever. You are my sustenance. You are what keeps me ticking. You're the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph goes from this thoroughly distraught, grieving, frustrated, anxious, envious person to a person who can face the scariest truth of human existence and come away with some sense of peace. He ends his his psalm like this. He says, listen, those who are far from you, God, will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. And it almost sounds like he's he's summarizing the answer to his original question of how is this working? Like it's, it's not supposed to work this way. Why is it happening? He says, okay, listen, I think we've settled that. Eventually, people who are wicked will get what's coming to them. That's what I used to be focused on. I think we can shelve that for now. We're good. But as for me, it is good to be near God. So simple, but it's a refrain of the first statement. As for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. I have made the sovereign Lord, the one who's in charge, the one who's bigger than me, the one whose strong hand I put my hand into. I've made a personal decision that he's going to be my refuge. 
He's going to protect me, defend me, shelter me. When all the world is going that way and I wish it would go this way, when everything inside of me is, is looking like it shouldn't look, when I'm anxious, when I'm afraid, God, you are in control and you are my refuge. You defend me and I'm good with that. And then he says something really cool where before he wouldn't let himself talk about what was going on because it would be damaging. It wasn't safe to just throw all that stuff out in front of everybody else. But now, now that he's come to this place in God's sanctuary and been taught these lessons and come to this place in his heart, now I will tell of all your deeds. Everybody needs to know about this. Everybody who may find themselves in this circumstance, they need to know that this kind of God exists. And for a lot of us, I don't know where we're at. I don't know what the slippery ground is. And really, ultimately, I don't know if it matters. Maybe you're with Asaph and you just see the world and you're concerned about it. You don't know how it makes sense. And you're starting to wonder, where is God? What is he up to? Is he still watching? Maybe for you, it's something else. It's something just way bigger than your strong hand can account for. Maybe for you, it's a medical issue or a financial issue or a future issue or big decisions you have to make. Maybe for you, it's a relationship or a lack of relationships. Maybe there's something hidden, like you're, you're kind of afraid, like Asaph, to put something out in the open because you're afraid of what it might do to the people around you. Maybe it's an addiction or a habit that you just cannot break no matter how hard you try. Maybe you found yourself shaken by life circumstances and you're zoomed in. What we learned from Asaph is the first thing he did is he found himself in God's presence. And again, we don't know why. And you know what? You're here and you're in God's presence and I don't know why. Maybe you were drugged here by somebody. Maybe you showed up because you were tired of having the same person ask you over and over again and you're like, at least let's shut up now. Maybe you came here because you just think it's the right thing to do. It's part of your routine. Maybe you came here because you serve and, and for you not to show up means you have to cancel or call someone else or maybe you just love it. Maybe this is what you look forward to every week. This is the thing that, that you feel like you get so close to God with. Whatever brought you here this morning, I think God has an agenda for you. And it's not an agenda to mess with you or to hurt you. I think he wants to take each of us, myself included, and invite us into a moment where he can speak to us and he can start to address maybe from the outside in all the layers of the onion of our life, the frustrations, anxieties, fears, whatever it might be, till he gets to the core and can say, hey, I see that and I am ready and willing to talk about that with you. So Asaph entered the presence of God, and then it seems the next step for Asaph was just hearing what God said and acting on it. And that's so hard sometimes, right? It takes this level of humility to walk into God's presence and open up and say, hey, why don't you tell me what I need to hear about this? I'm so zoomed in. I'm so frustrated. God, would you, would you give me your perspective and your wisdom? Would you even show me a place in my heart that's causing some of this that isn't good? Would you remind me that you're merciful and that your strong hand is better than my strong hand? Would you lead me? Would you help me? Well, in a couple minutes, we're actually going to do that. We're going to give you an opportunity to stay here in God's presence and, and ask him some questions and see what he has for us. I wanted to, to finish this out, though, with this statement from Jesus. Because this humility, this, this heart attitude of walking into God's presence and saying, God, do with me what you will, is actually foundational for our faith. Jesus is about to preach the most famous sermon he ever preached, and he starts with this phrase, and I love that he started it this way. This is from the New Living Translation. It says this, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. And I don't think he's talking about just monetarily poor. I think he's saying God blesses those people who realize they don't have the resources that they need to make life go the way they want it to go. When you recognize your need for him, for the kingdom of heaven 
is there. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right in front of us. And the people that get to walk into the kingdom of heaven have one distinction about them to start with. They recognize that they're limited. They can't sustain themselves. And they trust that God can. They recognize their need for God. And so that's what we're doing. And so I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to explain what our next steps look like as the band makes their way to the stage. Would you guys pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for Asaph's testimony, God. The so vulnerable, it's almost, almost awkward. But God, I thank you so much you preserved this story for us. That you allow us to understand from, from a gut-wrenching level of pain and frustration and anxiety how you can speak to each of us, how you can minister to us when we're in your presence. You can work on our hearts. You can help us zoom out, God. You can see who, who we are and we can, we can see who you are. God, I thank you for that. I thank you for your faithfulness. God, I ask that right now, people in the room who have been in your presence before and are so hungry for it again, that you would just allow them to open themselves up to you, to whatever you have to say to us. And God, some people in the room, they may feel a little weirded out by this. Maybe when we talk about your presence, it's kind of a strange idea. God, if that's the case, I ask that you would find that one spot of those people's heart, that hunger for something new or fresh or real. That desire that there would be a shift or a change in us, God. I pray you would take that spot and you would meet us there. And God, more than a to-do list or, or even just a next step, I ask that you would speak specifically to the thing that has put us on slippery ground this morning. And for each of us, that might be different, God. I just ask that you would teach us and guide us. We trust that you'll do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.